Good morning, Highland. It is good to see you all here today. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm also one of the ministers here. And I have one more thing to tell you about. Uh, February 14th is a particularly important holiday in the life of this church, not because it's Valentine's Day, but because it is Ash Wednesday. Those two holidays collide in the most wonderful, beautiful mix of love. And if you know anything Ash Wednesday, it's about death, which is kind of the same thing for Valentine's Day for some of us. um, anyway, so I want to invite you to come to our, uh, here in this auditorium at 7 o'clock at night uh, for Ash Wednesday. Um, if you've never been in an Ash Wednesday um, service before, um, Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. And Lent is the season of preparation as you get your hearts and your minds and your body ready for Easter. Now, I grew up in a congregation that didn't really even celebrate Easter, let alone Lent or Ash Wednesday, because we celebrated the resurrection every Sunday. And, uh, but there's something about what happens on Easter Sunday when you've been mindful of the presence of God for 40 days in front. And so I wanted to invite you to come and, and be a part of what's going to happen on February 14th. It's easy to remember the day, uh, 7 o'clock here in the auditorium. Ash Wednesday is about reminding ourselves that from dust you came and to dust you will return. The truth is, we're all gonna die. But that's not the end of the story for us. The dust you return is a period of quiet rest until resurrection occurs. And so, we're gonna talk about what you need to let go. Because there's a lot of things I don't need. There's a lot of things in my house that we still have. We have a, a pineapple crystal dish that we got at our wedding 18 years ago. We've never used it. All it does is sit in a cabinet gathering dust. We could get rid of that. No big deal. But for some reason, it just kind of remains. It's probably a gift from a relative, and that's why we can't throw it away. On the off chance, they come back and look for it or ask for it. But there's a lot of other things in my life that I can't get rid of. I don't need. You can imagine the journey that we're taking up the mountain together. If you go to an airport with those moving walkways, uh, you know, a suitcase makes sense. One of those rolly bags makes sense when, you, when, you're, when you're in an airport. But if we're going to climb up the mountain together, if we're going to go up Steamboat Hill, the thing you don't need is a bunch of luggage. And so for the season of Lent this year, we're going to invite you to lay some stuff down. It's the things that you don't need anyway. And as a symbol... We want to invite you to bring some gently used luggage. Gently used suitcases that you don't need anymore. They're just taking up space in your garage or in your attic or in some closet in your house. We want you to to bring them because it's going to symbolize the thing that you don't need anymore. But those empty suitcases aren't going to go to waste. Our plan is to take all those suitcases that we collect on Ash Wednesday and we're going to give them uh, to to DHS, to Child Protective Services. Um, If you don't know, Child Protective Services removes children in what is often the worst day of their lives. And often that removal, unfortunate and sometimes necessary, happens... um, you know, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day, and, and more often than not, the things that they take with them are, are carried out in garbage sacks, hefty bags. And those hefty bags sometimes have to go with them 
to, to two or three locations, and that's, they kind of live out of garbage sacks. And, and we want to provide more dignity to that situation than it offers. We can't solve the problem. We can't fix the, all of those situations and all those different uh, families, but, but we can provide a little bit of dignity. And maybe that investigator, that worker that's coming to do the difficult process of removal can bring a suitcase and give that child just a little more sense of, of dignity, of normalcy in their lives. So bring a gently worn suitcase. We're gonna put it to good effort. Uh, Ash Wednesday, February 14th. Before we jump into this uh, sermon, I wanna tell you a story. My wife and I were at a, a resort-type town and, and we wanted to, to see a show. And uh, there, were, there were two ways to see the show. You could pay a lot of money for it, or you could go to one of those, um, it's like a sales pitch. We didn't know what it was at the time. We were young. And it said basically, hey, we'll give you two free tickets to Cirque du Soleil. And we thought, that's a good deal. I would love two free tickets to Cirque du Soleil. But here's the hook. You've got to spend two hours in a room with us. And my wife knew what that was. I had no idea. I was like, sure, I could spend two hours anywhere. Two free tickets, I'm cheap. This makes total sense to me. Um, but but, the, but the, the hook is, is that they're gonna try to tell, sell you something and more often than not, it's gonna be a, you know, a timeshare, right? And I would go into this meeting if I had went and I would had in my mind, I'm just gonna keep saying, no, 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 we're not interested in buying a timeshare now. The problem is, is that the word now or today is this little wedge that an excellent salesperson could just wiggle into and open up my mind and my heart. And by the end of those two hours, I would be like, I need three timeshares. That's how gullible I am. And so we didn't do it. Uh, instead, we bought cheaper tickets, the cheapest we could find. One of those tickets was obstructed viewing. which meant that there was a 12-inch beam in front of 40% of the stage. And because of this, the way it was seated, you could see off into the side, you know, the other side of this, the stage. But it was a great show. It was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed 60% of what happened. It was fantastic. <laughs> like, you, you pay for cheap seats, that's what you get. I don't know if there were any, like, affordable seats. I'm sure there were cheaper seats, but I don't know if there were any affordable she uh, seats in uh, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour this summer. Um, some of you went. I saw it on your Instagram. Um, I think all of those seats were way too expensive, but probably some of us sat at the very top of the arena where all you could see was the giant 40-foot screen of Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift was just this little, little figure at the bottom. And I wonder what it'll be like. I wonder what it'll be like in the arena of heaven. At the first moment of the first glimpse when God appears. And the first sound begins to stir. And I wonder what it would be like to sit in the cheap seats of heaven. Our text today is Matthew 17, uh, chapter 5, 17 through 20. This is Jesus speaking. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches them and does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Will you pray with me, please? Oh, the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me, please? Father God, we are grateful for uh, being gathered here today. At communion, my mind and my heart were taken away to the experiences of communion and fellowship with brothers and sisters I would not have known if it hadn't been for your son, Jesus. Worship today has lifted my heart and it's filled my spirit. It's put words in my mouth that I could never have fathomed that I now use to praise for you. And Father, as we come to this challenging text, of righteousness, of what it means to be a disciple of your son, Jesus. I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church says, amen. You know, Walt Disney was right, absolutely right. The world is smaller than it's ever been before. Communication is easier and travel is more or simple. And, and it feels like the world's just a little more dense than it ever has been before. People just seem closer together. There was this time I, I took my mother and father-in-law to, to visit San Francisco. And if you've ever been to San Francisco or, or any town that was built before cars became like mainstream, um, London or Paris, any, any city in Europe or, or New York, you, you know what I'm talking about. Just anywhere other than Houston, basically, that the, the things are, are, are denser. There's row houses that are stacked together and there's, your front lawn is just kind of a stoop and, and everything's closer together. They use every little bit of space that they possibly can. You'll have a, a bodega on the bottom floor and then places to live above it and somebody else in the basement. Everything's just a little more crammed together. And this closeness, being that close to people, has a lot of benefits and some regrets. On one hand, there's a lot of joy in learning about other people and, and other cultures and even religious customs and holidays from our neighbors. If you've ever had the benefit of living in that kind of a multicultural experience, we lived for a while in this apartment building. And, and I now define multicultural experience not from what I see in the color of other people's faces, but what I smell from the food that they cook in dinner. Because as I'd walk through that courtyard by the swimming pool, I could smell all of the different places that all these different people had come from. And it wasn't just cuisine that we shared together. There was this Hindu festival called um, Holi. It was a celebration of spring and the celebration of love, and it's this kind of wild and exuberant holiday, and you take colored dust and you throw it on each other, and you squirt each other with water guns. At least that's what the kids in our apartment building did to me, and that was fun. I wanted to get a water gun and squirt him back. Or if you've ever sat with a, a Jewish family for a, a Seder during the Passover, and it reminds you of, of the importance of telling stories about who we are to our children and to, and to pass down that, the familial memory, the genetic memory of, of our identity with one another. 
There's so many good things that we can learn from living in proximity to our neighbors. And as much as we would like to just kind of overlook all the differences by slapping some sort of, we're all seeking the same thing, we can't really do that and remain intellectually honest. Uh, Stephen Prothero wrote a book called God is Not One. And he notes that religions are fundamentally different because they're asking fundamentally different questions. For instance, Buddhism is asking, how do I deal with the problem of pain? And so the answer to that question is, is you, avoid, um, you avoid desire, and that's how you avoid pain. That's not the same question that Christianity is asking. Christianity is asking an entirely different question. How do we, how do we reconcile? What's our restoration to God? And the answer to that question is through Jesus. So when the Hindu Swami Sinvanada said, Aharazamaza, Ishvara, Allah, and Yahweh are all referring to the same God, he couldn't have been more wrong. We are not on different trails leading to the top of the same mountain because our religious practices and beliefs are taking us to different places. We're all on different trails simply headed to different mountains. And this is why the Sermon on the Mount is critical to Christians. Because the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps in all of the New Testament, is the most dense collection of teachings that form you into the image of Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus is, read the Sermon on the Mount. And then you read the rest of Matthew and you see how the Sermon on the Mount is played out in his life, step by step, day by day, choice by choice. He is holding on to the values that he teaches in Matthew 5 through 7. The reality of living too close to neighbors sometimes causes friction. I don't know if you've ever lived on the second floor of an apartment building, but downstairs is way too noisy. Their music's way too loud, and upstairs has decided to have a dance party at 1130 at night. And our history is full of Christians and Jews and Muslims that have turned violence against one another and even against themselves. Sunni fighting Shia Muslims Israel and Palestine, Palestine in conflict and uh, Ukraine Christians killing and murdering Russian Christians. In fact, Ukraine for the first time breaking tradition two years ago decided to celebrate Christmas on December 25th. The Orthodox Church celebrates it in January but they changed the date of Christmas for the purpose of not having to celebrate it with the Russians who were attacking their nation. And for Christians, this is especially abhorrent for we believe that all people are created in the image of God and they must be loved just as much as we love ourselves. And it's gonna take us a while to sort out our relationship with Hinduism or the Tao. But our next nearest relationship has always been Judaism. Jews are probably as close to Christianity as any other group. After all, we say Judeo-Christian values because they're similar. And we agree on two-thirds of Scripture as the same book. We agree on our holy sites. We agree on who God is and how the world was created. The primary difference between Jews and Christians is our understanding of Jesus. Christians believe in the resurrection. The place where we agree is the Christian claim that Jesus is God incarnate and we believe that Jesus is God for many reasons because he rose from the dead because he has the power to heal 
the power over demons and the power to perform many other miracles, but also because he spoke with authority and what he said was from God. His words had the power to change people's lives, to turn them towards God. But the truth is, is those same words also had the power to drive people away in anger and disappointment. I've said this several times over the past few years that we've been together. The most powerful miracle that Jesus performs is not calming the storms or healing the sick or helping a blind person see. The most powerful miracle that Jesus performs is the transformed heart. And the good news is that he does it all the time. So I want you to remember a couple of things from last week, past couple of sermons, because we're going to be dealing with them as we address this text. Matthew has this beautiful way of stringing these ideas that seem separate from one another together in this way, this masterful way of, of combining these teachings to tell a story. The first situation is that the church that Matthew is writing to, this gospel to, is probably a small group of Jewish Christians who have been kicked out of their synagogue because they believe Jesus. They were once part of that synagogue, and now they're no longer to be a part of it, and they're being persecuted for that belief. Remember that Jesus in the Beatitudes said, blessed are you when people persecute you because of me. And so Jesus is speaking directly to the readers of the gospel there. The second is this metaphor that I want to use, and I want you to imagine with me one of those old school CRT televisions. Like the kind that used to come like a console TV, like your, your grandmother or your great-grandmother's television, right? It was so big and it existed in her house, and when it broke, they didn't even bother to move it, they just put the next one on top of it. <laughs> My grandmother had console TV, giant TV, little black and white TV, because that was just the progress of her life with television. <laughs> If you turn that television on, you'd see the world, and it would teach you, and it would inform you. But because of the unique nature of that glass that they use in the front of the CRT, uh, CRT TVs, if you turned it off, this is true of LCDs, but not quite the same. If you turned the TV off, what you saw was a mirror reflection of yourself. And that's kind of what the Sermon on the Mount is. It teaches you, and it informs you, and it transforms you. But it's also kind of like a mirror. And it, it invites you to ask some questions about who you are. The second of those two metaphors in the Tyrant Sermon on Mount is that the television is a mirror. And it teaches you who you should be. And at first, Jesus' followers were completely Jewish. So much so that the Romans who were governing them couldn't tell apart the Jews from the Christians. They just kind of lumped them all up as religious cousins. And early on, however, offshoots of these disciples uh, began to experience cracks in the walls between their Jewish neighbors, and they held to the teachings of Jesus above the teachings of the traditional interpretations of the law. And then Gentiles began to trickle into the churches and then flow and then gush into the church. And the church began to ask completely opposite questions than the one we're dealing with today. Not, how do I follow the law faithfully like Jesus? But they began to ask, do we even need to follow the law at all? And that's kind of like asking that question that we come to today. Do we need to follow the law? Does any of this matter? It's like kind of like going to a party and telling your people that you meet there, that your kind of pet theory about how I met your mother or lost is going to end. 
We already know the answer and nobody cares anymore. We stand at the other end of history on this one. And for the last 1,800 years, this question has been ultimately decided by the sheer mass of Gentiles that either been born into or converted into the path of Jesus. And so it's with this in mind that I want us to be careful that we don't just gloss over this text. Do we need to follow the law? It's my guess that Matthew would have had a hard time imagining a world where followers of Jesus would periodically persecute the people who followed Torah. As Barbara Brown Taylor notes, for us it is the law of sin and death, but for millions of Jews, it is the way of life, the way to become holy as God is holy. And the fundamental truth about this text is that Jesus is completely and deeply committed to following Torah. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember, he just told stories about who was going to be in the kingdom of heaven. They're not who you expect. They're not the ones on the top of the Ferris wheel, but the ones that find themselves on the bottom of life. But nonetheless, they are salt and they are light to the entire world. But here he is setting the bare minimum bar for the entrance of the kingdom, and it's a pretty high bar for you to jump over. If you want to come in, if you want to be part of the reign of this kingdom, if you want to join what God is doing on this earth, you should not only become people in the right relationship to God, to those around you, you need to do it better than the experts. And when Jesus enters conflict with those around him, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, or when they criticize him or vice versa. It's more often than not because they disagree about how to interpret Torah. And there's many types of different types of Jewishness that exist in the first century, the same way that there's many different flavors of Christianness today. There are the kind of the prophetic-centered Galilean Jews in the north and the temple-centered uh, priests and followers of Jerusalem in the south. And there were excellent neighbors called Pharisees that followed a large and precise interpretation of oral traditions that surrounded the law. And there were the Essenes living strict and ascetic lives out in the desert, rejecting all the sinful trappings of the doomed culture around them. The zealots thought the best social action was social revolution, violent if necessary. And the Sadducees were content to appease their Roman occupiers. The point is each of these groups felt they were being faithful to their best interpretation of Torah. But the law isn't just some monotone document. There are some places that are more important and therefore should be louder than others when there is competing laws or competing values. There are places where people are, mo these are the places where the people are most offended at what Jesus does when he interprets which is the most important part of the law. Let me show you what I mean. When Jesus tells a story that pits loving a neighbor against touching a dead body, he was not as strict about the purity laws as the temple Jews would be, and they got offended. He infuriated the Pharisees when he values the work of healing a man's withered hand over strict observance of the Sabbath. To Jesus, the value of table fellowship is more valuable, more important than ritual cleanliness. And what gives him the authority to make these kind of distinctions? Jesus says in this text, I came to fulfill the Torah. 
His every action and word demonstrates the perfect harmony of loving God and loving others. Jesus does not follow or interpret Torah. Jesus is Torah. Jesus completes Torah. His life, his death, his resurrection incarnate Torah. And for all of those that will follow him, he is the clear and perfect example of what righteousness is, even if that means cutting against the grain of our own religious traditions. So a question we might ask is, does this, does this text call us to be culturally Jewish? Does it mean that we have to obey the laws of, and all the dietary and sabbatical and ritualistic behavior? After all, Jesus says, not one jot or tittle, that's the literal translation, not the dot of an I or the tail of a Q will disappear until everything is accomplished. Torah was the means for Jews to respond faithfully and lovingly to God and to one another. In the first century to a Jewish audience, abstaining from selfish and pork was a way to honor God. And God may be calling you to do that or to not do that. Bacon-wrapped coconut shrimp sounds really good for lunch. I don't know. But if your conscience defies that as sin, then you shouldn't. The question that we need to be asking is, where are the ways that I can demonstrate my obedience to God here and now in the world that I live in? What does it look for me, like for me to honor God, to love my neighbor in everything that I do? And I want us to be careful that we don't just cop out on this. Sometimes we confuse following the path of Jesus to picking the things we like about Christianity as if we're in a cafeteria line. We like don't judge, we like grace, we like forgiveness. But if, if you're being a disciple of Christ, it means submitting all of yourself, not just the externals or the stuff that's easy or the stuff that's culturally adjacent over to him. Jesus says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And for his original audience, this would have been difficult to possibly imagine. Pharisees made great neighbors. They were respected by their communities. The kind of people you want to run the school board and the neighborhood association because they're honest and upright and decent folks. And the scribes and the teachers of the law <coughs> knew scripture better than anyone else. And you need to be better. I need to be better. How exactly does Jesus intend this to happen? Well, he, he's going to tell us. Jesus is going to go on to show his followers righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's this case law where he's going to provide the means for us to pick up on the themes and apply them to our, the entirety of our lives. He will use a phrase, you've heard it said, but I say to you over and over and over to emphasize how this plays out in the real world. And as you read it, you realize very quickly that there is no way you were ever, ever, ever able to pull this off. It can't be done. It's impossible. But if we take God's word seriously, it is exactly what Jesus calls us to do. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at verse 21 and 22 in chapter 5. And we're going to come across this again next week. You've heard it said to uh, the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment. But I say to you, 
Anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, it's a word for idiot, will be answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus is calling his disciples to do so much more than just do not kill. He calls them in three ways. He tells them they cannot be angry. He calls them not to disregard their brother or sister. He calls them not to insult their brother or sister. Because the difference is in your heart, it's the same thing. Murder and anger. We're going to dig into that more. Jesus calls his disciples to change their hearts, not just their actions. It's not enough just not to kill somebody you don't like. Jesus says you have to do more. And he's going to live the rest of his life doing more. Jesus calls them to listen to the spirit that is within them, beating like a drum. He calls them to treat everyone they meet as the image of God manifest all around them. He'll later go on to say, not just do not commit adultery, but rather don't lust, don't fantasize, don't let your eyes and your mind water, wander, because in your heart, it's the same thing. And I think this is the transformation that a disciple of Jesus that's focused on what Jesus is calling them to do, this is the kind of transformation that's required. It's not your externals. They matter, but it's not just your externals. What God longs for is the transformation of your heart. You know, for a long time, I thought that the, uh, you know, the end of the Sermon on the Mount is the, is the wise and the foolish man builds his house on a rock, builds their house on sand. And I thought the difference between those two people were the wise one is the one that prayed and the wise one was the one that read their, read their scripture and the wise one was the one that went to church and the foolish one was the one that didn't pray and the foolish one was the one that didn't read their Bible and the foolish one didn't go to church but I don't think that this is what the Sermon on the Mount is saying. That's not the dichotomy in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus seems to say, when you give, give this way. When you pray, pray this way. If you want to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, it has to go in two different directions. First, it has to be internal rather than external. That the transformation has to be a real reflection of who you are in Christ. And the second, it has to be eternal. You're going to have to find a way to make these changes last. And I got to tell you the truth, if you're making changes, if you're following God out of fear or out of guilt or out of anger or pride or shame, it's never going to last. You have to find the real reason to make the transformation that can only be made manifest by the Spirit of God. So may your trans transformation be internal. May it be eternal. And may your seed in heaven <clears throat> be slightly better than the cheat seats in the arena that you live in now. Would you please stand for the benediction? Highland, this week, I want you to have the courage to dig deep into your relationship with God. I want you to look into the perfect mirror of Jesus Christ via the Sermon on the Mount. 
And let those words wrestle within your soul. Let them claw and climb around your heart. Let them make you new. May you be transformed by the power of God's word and go in peace. Thank you.